Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 98 and Zulu Impies are going to be spotted near Umtata. Not that a fair helping of darkness has not swept Southern Africa prior to 1828, but this was the year in which the residents of Grahamstown were to suddenly become more aware of Shaka. The year in which the Trek Boers began to consider seriously moving away from the British and the year in which the Ndebele raids destabilized inland Southern Africa. With the defeat of the Ndwandwe, Shaka had moved to Kwadukuza near the Mvoti River, about 80 kilometers from Port Natal, a day and a half's journey, or two days if you're taking it fairly easy. It was a large ikanda containing around 1,500 huts and accommodating around 3,000 Amabutu warriors. Lisikorto, where his women lived, was vast, built on elevated ground overlooking the entire ikanda. It was 360 meters long, 35 meters wide, and housed probably 200 women in around 50 huts. Each hut was large and kept extremely neat and tidy, as was the want of the women of the king. They were arranged around a series of enclosures of different shapes, oval, circular, triangular, the floors hardened earth and compressed cow dung, which turns a kind of dark green and smells fresh, which is hard for people to believe who've never lived in a home comprised of this material. The reason why it's so hard was the earth was from anthills squeezed together with dung, then dried and polished to a glass-like consistency that shines like a mirror. It feels like marble, cool to the touch in the shade away from the blazing Zululand sun, and it sets as hard as concrete. Shaka knew that the white traders of Port Natal offered him a form of protection, and they represented the future, as contradictory as this sounds to us today. He moved away from the north, away from where the Ndwandwe had predated, away from the Portuguese centre of Delagoa Bay and closer to Grahamstown, which he knew about. Also, Port Elizabeth, as well as Cape Town, which had been featuring in Zulu's stories for some time. Along the Tugela River, a few kilometres north of Mvoti, lived the Tele and his favourite Nduna, Magai Ka Dibandlela. But something was bothering this Zulu king. It was the ongoing feud between the traders, King and Farewell, which I mentioned last podcast. James Saunders King was also showing signs of illness. Farewell and King had by now become part of Shaka's chiefdoms. He allowed them to develop their own herds, along with Ogle and Finn. This was how it was in Shaka's time. What was irking him was that Farewell and King were bickering over money and so too were their Zulu followers. Each tried to whisper in Shaka's ear about the other. It was after he had moved to Kwandakuza that Shaka had to decide who he preferred, King or Farewell. The reason was diplomatic. He wanted to send a delegation of his Induna to visit the British in the Cape and to discuss future ties. He had heard about the end of the Fifth Frontier War where the British had defeated Hinsa and sent in Tlambi packing, and the Battle of Grahamstown, where Ngaele had been overcome by the power of the musket. Shaka was aware of how significant the Amatkosa paramountcies were, and was impressed that the British had overcome them. The Cape, said Shaka, was indeed a powerful military region, and perhaps if he made allies of these British, he could increase his leverage at home. It was then that Shaka decided that James King was more impressive than Francis Farewell. One of the reasons he came to this conclusion was the two-masted schooner that King was building at Port Natal. Each board or completed section would be reported. Shaka's spies and messengers were sending him a stream of information about this vessel taking shape on the beach 
in this virgin bay. A magical process as it seemed to rise from the forest like some kind of wooden apparition. It was still being built when King was summoned to Kwadokuza to meet Shaka, along with Nathaniel Isaacs and Henry Francis Finn on the 24th of July, 1827. They were to sail to open negotiations with King George III of Great Britain, known as Mjojo by the Zulu. This was a secret mission, said Shaka. Everything was set. The launching of the Zulu diplomatic initiative would follow the launching of the ship. The timing, however, wasn't great. That's because it was only a few weeks later, after they were told of this diplomatic mission, that Shaka's mother, Nandi, died. This changed everything. She had been managing the Zulu king's domestic arrangements and was central to his life. She passed away in October 1827, although some report it was August, at Mkindini Umuzi, which is part of the Kwaibulwaya group of Umuzi near Ishowe. That's about five kilometers from the main homestead. Still, the important fact is not the exact spot or maybe even the exact date, but what happened afterwards. Nandi was of the Langeni people, and the descendants have many stories of what he did afterwards. So too, the traders like Finn and the youngster Nathaniel Isaacs. Each appears to try to outdo the other in the stories of murder and mayhem. Nandi is believed died of natural causes of dysentery like Shaka's grandmother, although because Shaka's actions had caused much unhappiness amongst sections of his followers, some think she was poisoned, assassinated. I'm going to repeat some of these stories which generally follow a main theme after Nandi's death, and that theme is bloodshed. Some recent historians have challenged the assertion that Shaka ordered many to be killed in response to his mother's death, claiming there is no proof. That's rather odd, considering that both the white traders and Zulu oral history tellers agree on the basic facts here. It's just the extent of the bloodletting that differs. There is also an argument about whether or not Shaka ordered the killings, but there is general consensus that killings took place. Shaka appeared at his mother's side as she lay dead in her hut at Mkindini, and he was convulsed with grief, dressed in his war regalia, daubed with coloured clays, his face white and black. He hung his head over his large shield. Tears were flowing. Ngidi, a Langeni woman, told the story later that Shaka was overcome and said, Alas, for my mother, what has killed my mother? Ngidi claims... He then heard that his mother had been harboring a male baby, his child, born of his umlunkulu, which was supposed to be banished along with the mother upon falling pregnant. It was either banishment or death, and Shaka was so angry that he stabbed his own mother. We think this tale is wrong. Henry Francis Finn also disagrees, writing it was definitely dysentery, and most historians accept Nandi died of natural causes. Back in the hut, Shaka let out a shriek and collapsed, writhing on the floor. Finn was taken aback. He was taken even further aback when the people began to flock to join Shaka. All ornaments were stripped away. Beads were discarded. Wails and lamentations peeled across the valleys and the hills. People competed with each other in this grieving business. Cattle were slaughtered but not eaten. The carcasses left for the hyenas, the vultures and the dogs. Some killed others for not grieving deeply enough. Long-standing vendettas were settled. All the while, Shaka lay down on the floor alongside Nandi, inconsolable. Some used violence to express devotion. Shaka's Amakosi sent war parties out across the land to kill people who did not prostrate themselves or present themselves at Kwa Bulawayo to join the morning. 
Great herds were driven there, the noise of the cattle lowing and the sounds of their hooves drumming, adding to the din the power of the moment. Finn reported that at least a dozen or more people died on that first day, but later he had somehow changed that number to 7,000. This is farcical, of course, but has somehow ended up being one of the bits of Shaka, the killer of thousands in mythology. But it is clear that a large number of arbitrary killings now took place, and this caused a ripple of distress to fan out across his kingdom. Normal life was suspended. There would be no sexual intercourse. Only milk and curds could be consumed, but not Amabele grain. Zulu stories speak of a man in Kamama of the Sabisi people who informed on non-mourners who were subsequently speared and of spies who grotesquely inspected people's feces to check whether or not grain had been eaten, and some of the warriors in the Izayendani Mbuta who'd been protecting Nandi fled, believing they'd be blamed for her death. They weren't too far wrong. The Izayendani, of course, were linked to Dingan, and Dingan was eventually going to kill Shaka, and some in Zululand say that it was Dingan who had Nandi killed. Later, Dingan was blamed on dreaming up the storyline that Shaka killed his own mother, just so that the murder of his brother didn't look too bad. Look, I killed Shaka, but you know, he killed his own mother. I mean, that kind of sentiment. Crazy town, this history business. And in Zululand, political myth-making is a kind of national sport. Amazingly, a man called Madlebe, who was present at Nandi's death, confirmed later that Nandi had been protecting a woman of Shaka's Izigodlo, who had given birth to a son, and that Nandi had kept this information from the Zulu king. But Matlebe said there was no proof that Shaka had followed all of this up by murdering his mother. It was just known, but he did not do it. Nevertheless, two days after her death, Nandi was buried in a boot-shaped grave, propped up on a mat and covered with another woven mat. Her clothing, jewellery, blankets, her eating utensils were placed alongside her. A number of attendants were strangled to death to join her down below so that they could cook and clean for her in the manner of the Egyptian pharaohs. Dimgando, as they were known, about ten women, girls and Izintheku were killed and buried lining her grave, propping her up. One Zulu story says it was more like three old women were killed. No one has ever had the temerity to dig up her grave and test which story is true, and we reckon no one ever will. The grave was filled and covered with stones, and a wooden fence was erected around the area. For the next three months, a crowd of Langeni people stood watch, along with a large regiment of warriors. From then on, and actually to this day, remarkably, her grave outside Ishoi, to the south on the old Mpangeni Road, has been kept from being affected by fire despite the trees and bushes that sprang up and flourished there today. So, as soon as the period of mourning came to an end, somewhere around September 1827, or perhaps a little later, Shaka turned once more to his emissaries he planned to send to meet with England's King George III. Back in Port Natal, James King was told to hurry up and finish building his two-masted schooner, which was completed by February 1828. Shaka then summoned King for one last briefing, before he headed off down south. King should negotiate a treaty of friendly alliance with George. Mjojo. King was playing a dangerous double game, however. When the schooner was launched on the 10th of March, 1828, instead of naming her Shaka, as he had promised, he named the ship Elizabeth and Susan, 
and sailed on the 30th of April, 1828, for Port Elizabeth in Algoa Bay. Sharker sent Jacquard Msimbiti, the Amatkoza man who swam into Seleucia, if you remember, as his interpreter, along with the chief emissary, Sotobi Kaampangalala. He was of the Sabia people, trusted by Sharker, and Sotobi was joined by his aide du camp, Mbozumboza, who was an intelligence gatherer for the Zulu king. Sharker had told Sotobi to take his favorite wife with him. It could be a long trip, so he chose Intombintombi. Several other trusted Zulus sailed off, named by trader John Kane as Managada, Pangia, Nomama, Matomba, and Mushleva. Amongst the traders who joined King were Hutton, who built the ship, Isaacs, and a second interpreter, Klauju Ka Nomdai of the Emma Tulini, who lived close to King and was actually a member of his new Zulu tribe. The big problem with all of this is that James King was a completely unrepossessing fellow and regarded as a country bumpkin and downright shady by the British officials. As King swaggered about a little later in Port Elizabeth, Sharker's emissaries noted how he was scoffed at. This was not a man taken very seriously by his own people. Was he in fact representing Sharker, this emperor of Zululand, thought the British officials? Before this question was fully answered, Sharker sent an impi to raid the Mpondo south of the Inzimkulu River. Why did he send these regiments south when he was talking peace with the British? It's part of the history of the time which makes us shrug. Perhaps he thought that by attacking one of the apparent enemies of the British, the Amambondo, they'd appreciate his actions. It's more likely for another reason, and had nothing to do with the British. Sharker believed they were so far away it needed one of King's large schooners to reach them, so his actions were unlikely to affect the empire. Sharker, you see, needed to wipe away the tears of Nandi's death, and so the Amambondo were chosen as revenge for the humiliation of the Amabetre MP of 1824. You remember the disastrous Melon campaign? He hadn't raided anyone of significance for some time, and members of his regimental leadership were beginning to mutter behind his back. He needed glory, and more importantly, a treasure in the form of herds of cattle. So in May 1828, the Inflambo Impi set off under Mtlaka Kangiri, who by now was the oldest and most respected commander in Shaka's army. This moving mass of warriors was duly noted by Cape Border officials, who counted them as they passed, and believed to be about 3,000 in size. Sharka accompanied them for the first part of the journey to Finn's most southern kraal just across the Inzimkulu River, where he remained until the raiders returned. He was protected there by the Fasimba Ibuto and joined by a number of his favorite women from the Mdlunkulu called the Unkisimane, who hailed from Kwadakuza. This cleansing army that was on its way to the Amampondo, this Ilambo Impi, was planned to focus attention on the future. Great herds were going to be captured. Leaders of the army would be rewarded. The Amabuto were going to feast. The Amakosi satiated. While he waited with Finn, the main body of this army continued under the command of Mlaka and Ungomani. This was some impi. Also present were a literal constellation of the most well-known Amakosi and Izinduna, Mkamama, Mbikwana, Seketwayo, and of course, Zulu Ka Nogandaya. 
King Faku and his Mpondo warriors were alerted to this large army on its way and wisely decided that they'd retreat up the slopes of the Drakensberg from where they were living around Mtata of today and into the country of the Amabomvana people. But they had to leave most of their cattle behind to the delight of the Zulu Impi which collected them up like discarded dollar notes or pound notes. We know that this Zulu force made it as far as the Umtata River, a distance of almost 500 kilometers from Port Natal. That is some march. The story went that they reached Maposi, near the ocean, now called Mapuzi, which is around 6 kilometers upriver from Coffee Bay. The alarm bells were ringing, and not just in Amampondo territory, but further south as the missionaries began picking up stories about this assault. For example, Missionary William Shrewsbury, who lived at Butterworth, heard that the Zulu troops had swung from inland near the Drakensberg down the Mtata River and were gathering cattle as they moved. Shrewsbury wrote, Shaka was intoxicated with success, for immense herds of cattle were taken. And later Shaka sent a message to Hinsa of the Kaleka demanding a present of oxen from him. Hinsa just laughed and told Shaka to sharpen his assegais, a kind of perfect brush-off, if you've ever heard one. There was no battle, until, that is, some Amatosa warriors tracked their thousands of cattle gathered up by the impis to an unnamed forest, where there was a short engagement, and the Amatosa withdrew. The Zulu army gathered around 10,000 head of Amampondo cattle around the Mtata River by mid-June 1828. These cattle were reportedly all of a particular light brown colour, proving they were the Amatosas. The Zulus also captured women and girls as they went, which would be a useful bargaining chip when it came to Shaka securing control of the Mpondo, he thought. Henry Francis Finn began to advise Shaka about Faku of the Mpondo, at least that's what he claims. Shaka wanted to know if Faku would consent to becoming a tributary of the Zulu if he had all his women and some of his cattle returned. Finn said he thought so, and after some debate amongst the councillors, Shaka ordered some of the women returned as a good-faith gesture, then sent a message to his Izinduna to stop burning Amatkosa corn and to come home. He ladled out some of the cattle to Amatkosa clans on the way to buy them off. By mid-July, they had retired back north across the Imzimkulu River. In the Cape, Word was circulating that a major Zulu impi sent by its warlord Shaka had been marching around not far to the north of the frontier. The British resolved to mobilize their troops in a kind of display of their own over the next few months, showing off their military prowess and hoping that the message would be received as a warning by Shaka. Meanwhile, James Saunders King had been waiting, along with Shaka's emissaries, in Algoa Bay. The port's customs officer, D.P. Francis, was stunned by what he called the impressive shipbuilding effort when he spotted the Elizabeth and Susan and announced that King should be accorded the greatest praise for his industry, workmanship and perseverance. King said he now wanted to travel to Grahamstown to show off the Zulu king's emissaries, but he was in a spot of bother. The local civil commissioner at Utenhag was J.W. van der Richt, and this man was in no mood to let a group of unknown Zulu warriors wander around the British military lines. Pandarit had heard the stories of their renowned reputation for ferocity, so ordered King to stay where he was. Something extremely baffling now developed. King somehow came to the conclusion that his Zulu friends should travel all the way to England to meet the real King, George III. 
Sir Toby should set sail for England, he said. The other senior representative, Mbozomboza, was supposed to head overland or perhaps to the British frontier. King now claimed that he had been compelled to leave hostages for the Zulu ambassador's safe return. He was concocting stories as he went. Naishaka had done no such thing as seize Finn as a hostage. Finn later claimed he was the hostage, but as we know, he was operating as a free agent and was actually joined by Shaka, not the other way around. Back in Port Elizabeth, government officials were literally scratching their heads. What were they supposed to do? So as usual, they ordered King to sail to Cape Town for the governor to sort all this out. Can't have some local lackey falling foul of a proper decision now, can we? Days passed as the Isanduna with them hung around a place called Mrs. Robinson's Boarding House, drinking tea and watching ships in Algoa Bay. The Governor's Secretary, Lieutenant Colonel Bell, criticised van der Riet for not coming to Port Elizabeth himself to sort out this issue. Van der Riet preferred languishing in Utenhaeg. It was winter, after all, so perhaps the cold rain kept him indoors. Bell told King it was fine if he wanted to set sail again with the Zulu emissaries and head home or to the Cape. Local officials had washed their hands of this affair, but would give Mbozomboza a few trifling presents worth around £10 and send him on his way. The ongoing King pantomime really kicked in at this point because the bureaucrats in Algoa Bay then tied a tight ribbon of red tape around his ship, the Elizabeth and Susan, declaring it a foreign vessel. It had been built in Port Natal, which was not British at this point. So he didn't have a sailing register, and without that there would be no sailing from P.E. as a British coaster or schooner. King would be officially tagged a pirate if he sailed back to Port Natal. The Zulu emissaries were acutely aware of what was going on. King began to feel a distinct terror creeping up on him. Sharka was going to rip his head off, or worse, and the insults on the emissaries were mounting by the day. King's cunning plan he'd carefully concocted was in shreds, and now the poor chap began bleating to Bell and anyone else who would listen, saying Shaka was deadly, he'd be insulted, he would sweep past the Amampona next time and head straight for Grahamstown, seeking revenge. But the British were unconvinced. King managed to scrape together another 800 English pounds of gifts before returning to Port Natal, which he hoped may just save his skinny British neck. As you'll hear next episode, King was actually quite ill and near death, so Shaka was the least of his problems. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. And thank you for listening, because the History of South Africa podcast has made it into Apple's top five for Southern Africa when it came to costs that captured the moment. I hope we managed to capture the moment into the future too. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me or through Twitter at deslatham. Until next, happy Christmas. Thank you.